When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. The American Civil Liberties Union has been fighting for the rights of individual Americans for nearly a hundred years. It makes free speech one of the centerpieces of its work to defend the rights of everyone to speak up and challenge, especially those in power. But when it defends members of the alt-right and organizations that promote hatred and division, how does it keep up its other principles of defending equality, dignity, and everyone's freedom to speak and participate in public discourse? Join me for a conversation with Emerson Sykes, who's a staff attorney at the ACLU in New York City and works on privacy, technology, and freedom of speech. Emerson is a graduate of Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School, New York University School of Law, and Stanford University. He's been active both in politics and the law and gives me a thoughtful view into the workings of the ACLU and how to promote their work and how to advance the freedoms we all hold dear. I'm very pleased to have Emerson Sykes here today as someone to talk about uh, free speech. Emerson has started as a staff attorney at the ACLU in its Washington office very recently. And I'm really happy to have this conversation. There's a lot of questions about the way in which we handle free speech in this country. And I'm sure the ACLU gets its share of interesting incidents and cases to deal with. You yourself are a graduate of Stanford, an undergraduate then the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton and New York University School of Law. So you've been in very large institutions that all have seen their share of interesting, robust conversations about what free speech is, especially in the university. But if I could start out by asking, since you're just starting at the ACLU, it seems like an incredibly exciting position of what's the portfolio you're going to look at and what, what are you anticipating is going to be your set of responsibilities there? Well, thanks very much for the introduction and for inviting me to speak with you. Just one note is that I'm actually in the New York office in the national headquarters. Oh, so um, we're, we're down the street from one another. Okay, good. Exactly. I, I can maybe see NYU from my office. Okay. But yes, as you mentioned, this is actually my first week at the ACLU. I'm very proud to have joined the Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project and my portfolio include a variety of issues, but including campus speech protests, mostly focusing on free speech offline. Yet there are members of our team who focus on privacy, technology, surveillance, and that sort of set of issues around the First as well as the Fourth Amendment. But my portfolio will focus on the First Amendment and free speech, including speech on campus. 
you had another couple other roles quite interesting. I think you you worked with a member of parliament in Ghana and you worked for the Century Foundation, correct? And for another legal organization. If you can say what's your background so far in dealing with speech issues? Yeah, my career has been a little bit um, atypical in terms of switching back and forth between domestic and international work. I've worked with local government, national governments, and mostly in sub-Saharan Africa, but also some in the United States. So I worked briefly with the National Democratic Institute in Central and West Africa working on elections, and then uh, worked at the Century Foundation doing foreign policy research, very much focused on the United Nations and U.S. foreign policy. And then, as you mentioned, I, I got a joint degree from the Woodrow Wilson School and NYU Law, studying sort of the nexus of law and policy in domestic and international politics. And soon after, the first position that I held after completing graduate school was as a senior research fellow in the office of a member of parliament in Ghana, which was a hugely eye-opening experience, sort of seeing what it looks like on the inside of a legislative body. And I split my time between a sort of rural constituency in the Brangahafa region and then being in the capital. And then from there, I actually started working at the New York City Council, where I was an assistant general counsel focusing on the rules, privileges, and elections committee. So in that capacity, I did a bit of work on anti-corruption, transparency. I also supported our chief of litigation working on stop and frisk and a few other issues Related to freedom of speech, uh, there were some controversies around crisis pregnancy centers. I don't know if you followed that line of of controversy, but it does implicate free speech, among other issues. And then from the city council, my most recent position was as legal advisor for Africa at the International Center for -for Not-for-Profit Law. And in that capacity, I was working on what we called civil society law in sub-Saharan Africa. So that was primarily focusing on the rights to freedom of association, assembly, as well as expression. So I was working with nonprofit organizations, government officials, parliamentarians, as well as diplomatic missions to try to reinforce the legal framework protecting what we call civic space, basically the ability of individuals and associations to operate freely, to protest, to speak out, to advocate for different issues. So my path to the ACLU has been, as I said, a little bit unconventional, but I think issues around what it looks like to have threats to some core values in terms of speech, association, and assembly have been things that I've been thinking about in one capacity or another for quite some time. And it's really interesting to listen to you. It's sort of, first of all, I'm thinking your career must have spanned at least 70 years so far by having done all these things. (laughs) But more that you're trained in an American law school and you have a JD and this joint degree with the Woodrow Wilson School, but you have international experience in in spaces and in countries where some of the assumptions about some of what we consider basic rights may be different, where some of the values may be actually different because people have their own cultural sort of values and assumptions. And secondly, where the legal framework is different. So you've worked in areas where one wouldn't take recourse right away to refer to the first or fourth or, you know, any of the 14th Amendment or something because we just have different legal frameworks, constitutions. Do you think there's, in this country, to come back to the United States, there's this perception in the media that there's a crisis around speech on campus? And I've talked to a lot of people. I talked to Nadine Strassen, actually, who was you know, president of the ACLU for quite a long time. And I've talked to lots of people in the university, students, faculty, staff. And there's a variety of opinions whether this is a crisis. The people I've spoken with have been quite thoughtful and said, 
This is an important and urgent moment to think about what is the role of the university and whether a kind of very narrow understanding of free speech is always inherently good as long as it protects everything is really the right approach. And the ACLU is, of course, at the center of this. Do you feel you're walking into a space where there is a sense of crisis or more a sense of opportunity? Or how do you see that? You, get, you probably have to get a feel for what people are going to bring to you. And I have to say, I mean, I, I'm now working with the ACLU and, and agree with ACLU positions, but with the caveat that, that is, this is my fourth day on the job. So I can't, Absolutely. I can't claim to, to, to be well-versed in all of the jurisprudence and everything that the ACLU has done on the issue for the last hundred years. But in my, in my opinion, and I think this is shared by many of my colleagues, uh, though there's a diversity of opinion within the organization, I don't see it as a crisis per se. And I think, you know, having read your contributions to this debate, I think there are a lot of things on which we're on the same page. There's obviously some points of divergence, I think. Um, but I think in terms of welcoming student activism, protecting student activism, encouraging student activism, I think is, is a priority. And in terms of campus speech, the first thing we want to do is protect the right to free speech. And that includes a right that's often under threat, which is the right to protest. Um, so I think, you know, we would both start there. And I think in terms of what are the threats that we see to campus speech, I think they're primarily targeted at those who are protesting. And I think a lot of the folks who might agree with the ACLU position broadly on how to deal with the tough cases. I tend to disagree with them in many cases on how they characterize those students. You know, whether I know that you use controversially the word snowflake in the title of your, your New York Times op-ed, and I agree that that's not a helpful frame. I think, you know, listening to these students, encouraging these students, protecting their rights is the priority rather than you know, dismissing or denigrating or telling them they don't know what's going on. It's interesting. I, it, what I tried to do, there was a kind of part of provocation in my use of that term. And then I also thought I wanted to shift the conversation away from fragility and emotional distress and being offended to a very real and legitimate concern about equal participation, about respect, which are more robust terms, more solid terms, because I was concerned about this kind of condescension toward a generation which I think is bringing a conversation to campus which needs to be had. And as you said, there's an interesting part. There's a kind of narrative that conservative speakers are being suppressed and they are being driven out of campuses and shouted down and it's very difficult and that's the end of free speech. On the other side, you have legislative efforts to penalize protesting students to have mandated sentencing. So I've talked to people about the Goldwater Institute's proposal to put these legislative bills into play where at public universities, student protest is the first thing to be penalized. So there's two sides to it. I think what I've tried to get out of is this kind of victim narrative that either somebody has been has become the martyr for free speech, and it's been unclear to me what are they the martyr for, in some ways, when their message is actually also has nothing to do with free speech, it seems, and they, I don't even believe in free speech because the first thing they want to do is shut down the student protesters. So this kind of asymmetry. So, you, so it's interesting that you're starting out by saying, let's look at what is the intent behind our country's sort of strong free speech protections is to protect the right of people to protest positions of authority. 
that it's a political tool to actually be able to voice dissent, that that's really what's important. And I think that's what shifted, actually, that now in our country we're seeing that maybe the students are not irrational, you know, oversensitive, coddled beings, but actually registering, saying, we have a right to protest things we vehemently, strongly disagree with. Yeah, and I think the the sort of disconnect that you pointed to is is important, and I think the ACLU, for all of its you know strengths and faults, is really trying hard to to be consistent in terms of protecting the free speech rights of everyone, whether those which are whatever the political stripe or even the viewpoint of those people, and whether we agree with their message or not. And so, as you said, you can't say these conservative speakers deserve the right to speak but Black Lives Matter are terrorists and they don't deserve a platform. And so from the ACLU perspective, put aside the viewpoint, you know, obviously we work very closely with activists of all stripes to protect their right to speech. You know, Black Lives Matter as well as people who are unpopular in other directions. Can we stay with this for a moment? Because this is one of the arguments that's been made. It's quite interesting. So David Cole, sort of the leader of the ACLU, has made this argument very strongly. So say, once we get into distinguishing between viewpoints, Aside from its so the legal way of doing this, we end up maybe silencing the wrong people or silencing the right people today, and tomorrow it'll be the wrong people because we'll use their tools against them. Then there's an argument that people are saying, no, there's power and positionality, and people are located differently. So when the Attorney General identifies Black Lives Matter as a domestic terrorist organization, but fails to do so for white supremacists who've murdered people in Charlottesville, there's a difference here, and some people are located differently in the social space. So the ACLU, as you're saying, doesn't want to get into that conversation. It's very aware of it. I think people have talked about it quite eloquently and really with an informed way, but said if we get into that conversation, then we pick and choose who has power, who doesn't have power, and we'll protect the powerless, which is that it ends up being a kind of more or less debatable position. Well, I think, yeah, I think there's a point about the line drawing and how dangerous that prospect is. And I can share lots of stories, you know, especially from my experience in sub-Saharan Africa of laws that on their face you might think were intended to do one thing and can be very easily used to do another. And I think it's not simply a theoretical position. You know, we have examples in our legal history where rules that were created to protect folks from of one political stripe abhorrent or, or not, as they might have been, those same rules that are in the jurisprudence have been used to protect the other side. And, our, you know, the sort of progeny of the Brandenburg decision has been used to protect black power movement in the 1960s and 70s. So there are specific examples. So the Brandenburg decision being one where there's kind of incendiary speech based on sort of group libel against a particular group, and the court said you cannot prohibit that kind of speech unless it's immediate direct incitement to violence. Right. And this same rule was used to protect quite adamant positions taken by you know, the Black Panthers and other radicals on the quote-unquote left, and this, the same precedents were held to keep the bar for incitement quite high. So it's not purely theoretical. And I, I also would say that the characterization of folks who are quote-unquote on the absolutist side is not to, you know, be conservative with a small c and trying to keep things any particular way that they always were or some ideal that we think has existed. I agree with you that, you know, these students are trying to address historical issues and they need to be seen in a historical context. They need to be understood as a reaction 
to the status quo ex ante. Um, but at the same time, we think that it's not just an instrumentalist approach to, to the First Amendment, but that we are genuinely committed to protecting free speech for those who have not historically had it, as well as those who have historically had it, but it's under threat now for different reasons. So, you know, when we talk about, you know, preserving the sanctity of these constitutional principles, it's not to ignore the complications or, or, or tragedies in American history where these things have not always been enjoyed by folks equally. But I think ACLU has a quite strong track record of pushing for the rights of the vulnerable and, and marginalized people and also everybody else. I think what's behind some of these debates is that some people are saying we're, we've lost a bit of faith that the law is always on our side. We've lost the faith in two constitutional principles, which is that the Constitution and the, the Supreme Court will defend the rights of political minorities against majorities and actually look out for minorities. And secondly, it will keep majorities from running roughshod or implementing its partisan view on everybody without any constitutional check. So minorities are protected. Majorities are prevented from imposing their wish and desire on everybody. And there are ways in which I think people are saying, can we really trust and rely the law as an abstract thing or our courts which I think is a really urgent debate in our country. And I think what's happened is that people are then turning to the ACLU and saying, can you actually do more than what you could even do is which restore our faith in the law, in the courts, that this will work on behalf of people who are disenfranchised right now, who are not politically advantaged, who are not helped. And I think there's a larger history. It's not the, two, the last two years of student protest, but it's from Citizens United. It's from restrictions on certain types of speech. So people, I think, are paying attention that the language on abortion must not be used in federally funded clinics in California. It seems a direct violation of a free speech principle by a court that then turns around and says, absolutely, we must defend ultra-right-wing, alt-right, and neo-Nazis and the Klan. And so they're saying, what I think is interesting that there's, of course, this First Amendment has always been interpreted differently. The jurisprudence is fascinating and varied, and it's not an absolute position that's remained static over time. But this trust in the rule of law and actually that our country will uphold these principles, I think that's a bit not shaken, but as you said, and as we're going through you know, another nomination process for a Supreme Court justice, I think the country is really paying attention to say, okay, can we really rely on the fact that our courts and our laws will do the, the work that they're supposed to be doing? You raise an important point. I think, you know, anybody who has worked in the legal field trying to push for more justice, rights, and democracy, it's easy to become disheartened. And so I'm, I'm sympathetic to those who lose trust in the legal system because, you know, there are more reasons to be disappointed and setbacks and it's certainly not the case that the court, that, that even lawyers or, or the ACLU would say that the courts are always right or always capable of coming to the, to the proper conclusion the first time. Obviously, we lose a lot of cases that we think we should win. Um, so trust in the courts, there's, there's reason to, to feel frustrated, certainly. But I think there's also undoubtedly a role to be played for legal advocacy. Now, is that going to you know, society has to change, norms need to change, political systems and political actors have a huge role to play. But I think there's undoubtedly a role also for, for legal advocacy to try to 
push the system to, to, to respect rights in a way that we think is more equitable. Now, again, that doesn't necessarily mean that we have blind faith that, that the courts will set us, you know, on the right direction every time. But we think it's a worthwhile effort to try to, to try to protect these rights in court. And I think there are, you know, history has shown that it can be an effective tool among other tools that others have used to try to push for change. Can, can you say something? And I understand you, you've been there for four days and you're not representing every view of the ACLU, which is a very large organization with, you know, obviously really, you know, divergent views within. But this kind of idea of legal advocacy, and I'm not familiar enough, does the ACLU do that to kind of educate people about the importance of the rule of law? And while one may have doubts or be disillusioned occasionally, that nonetheless it is a very powerful tool that has to be used to advance our goals and not give up on it. Yeah, I think the ACLU has recognized that while our comparative advantage might be in terms of strategic and impact litigation, we certainly are, are putting a lot of effort into you know, movement building and sort of bringing power to the people, I think is the, the name of the initiative. And I, as, as you said, I can't talk in detail about all of the different strategic initiatives at the ACLU, but I think that there is sort of an institution-wide understanding that not only do we need to do what we do in court, we need to be able to explain that to people through media and other public outreach, what's going on in the courts and why it's important, but then also this sort of reach out, outreach to activists, to students. And I think while that, that has always been a part of the ACLU's work, I think there is an understanding and a commitment from the senior leadership that more efforts need to be made in that regard to sort of make the case to a broader audience. I think this is critically important for this next generation. And part of why I'm doing these podcasts with lots of people, because I've felt an experience that to remind people there's a First Amendment and it's good for you, is doesn't really resonate with people who are actually quite well informed and say, really, let me show you the four cases where it hasn't been good for me and where speech law is interpreted in a way that actually hurts the interests of minorities, for instance, or just protects the interests of majorities. And as you know, Elena Kagan, in a dissent this summer in 2018, said, you know, the, the First Amendment can be used as a sword to advance partisan views. And it's a very strong criticism of using First Amendment doctrine to advance a partisan agenda, which he's essentially faulting her conservative judges for. I thought that was a stunning statement from the court. And I think what people then want the ACLU to also say, we want to be reassured that you guys are not just keep on taking the high profile cases and defending the neo-Nazis. And I think it came to a point in a, in a way where I think this is a moment to take sort of this as a learning moment or teachable moment to say, okay, after Charlottesville, the ACLU was kind of, there was a put pressure put on to explain yourselves a little better. Why are you doing this? And I think a lot of people felt who didn't live through Skokie in the 70s, who didn't know any of this, who were born in 2000 or 1999 or something like that, students are saying, you're defending the people who have actually murdered someone here. We don't understand the principle, or even if we understand the principle, you're going to keep on giving headwinds to people who are in power and who will advance this power and not work on behalf of everybody in America. Yeah, and no, obviously it's a tough question, and it's and it's a difficult issue that the ACLU internally has had to deal with as well. And I think one thing that I would just say is that while there may be a perception that 
the ACLU sort of prioritizes these these high-profile cases to claim this moral high ground of defending the least popular people. I think in public perception, maybe, and maybe in ter- but even in terms of media coverage, if you actually look at the, the preponderance of the cases that we take, and even when someone reads that the ACLU is defending a student protester, they they nod and keep reading, and it's not so surprising. These these cases where you know we submit a brief in support of the position taken by the NRA against Cuomo, that you get a little bit more resonance and people tend to sit up and take notice. So I don't think it's the case that we are focused on defending the alt-right or that we particularly relish those opportunities, but I don't think we should stop either. I think that we devote a huge amount of resources within our speech team, but also we have a whole racial justice project. We have a women's rights project. We have LGBT rights project. We have all these projects that work with activists in all these different communities to protect their rights. And the vast majority of our resources are devoted to those types of activities within the speech team, but then more broadly within the organization. So I think, you know, I would just say that the balance of our efforts should be kept in perspective, but there's no doubt that these tough cases are tough cases. And I think, you know, there are some details about the Charlottesville case in particular that are complicated, but I think what you'll find from our free speech team is that we are on the side of protecting the protesters irrespective of their viewpoint. Now, and as we discussed earlier, there is a very high bar for incitement in the United States. And that has, that's there for a reason. And that has definitely been used by all political stripes to protect, to protect their speech. Now, that doesn't mean people shouldn't be upset. I mean, I think, you know, when someone is saying something you don't like, our, our point is not saying, oh, their speech is protected, therefore you need to sit at home and quietly listen to them. Of course not. If you know, you also have the right to speak out against them. We're not saying that free speech means that you need to just suck it up or you know, be less sensitive or those types of things. And that's where I disagree with some of the people that are even on the same side of the argument broadly about free speech. I don't think the, the lesson is you know, the, the price we pay for democracy is that we listen to people you know, insult us. I mean... On some level, maybe that's the case, but I think the more the, the more positive way of framing it is the First Amendment protects your right to very vigorously advocate for your position. I think it's what you just said. It's quite important for people to know that a large part of the resources and the energy and thinking of the ACLU is devoted to these other projects. And I think what's unfortunate is that that, that hasn't gotten out enough, uh, frankly, when I've talked to people who are not aware of this and they say, ACLU not my team. They just defend the worst types of people in the name of some pseudo-Voltarian principle. I defend the speech I bore, or to get credibility with conservatives, where people are saying, I don't need more credibility with conservatives in this moment in our country. Right now, I actually need to be defended. So I think this is important that the ACLU, there's always this obligation when you enter into these difficult things, you're defending the rights of somebody you vehemently disagree with there has to be another statement saying we actually disagree with it and we're doing actively things to go against that. It's the same for universities. When universities host somebody and say, yeah, we disagree with this viewpoint, but we have to throw up our hands. The First Amendment is here. We can't help it. Students start pressuring the administration and saying, what are your real values? Are you really, really against this? Or are you just saying that that's just window dressing, but we don't feel you have a commitment to equality to an inclusive and diverse campus because you keep on inviting these lunatics 
who advocate a kind of white ethno state, and I'm studying at this university that is not conducive to my learning environments. So this double message that if you defend somebody who you disagree with, you have to say more than just, oh, we disagree with them. And I think that's where a bit, partly what you're saying is because the attention is gotten by these people who are deliberately just mobilizing social media to get a lot of attention. So in some ways, you're in a kind of public relations engagement as much as a legal strategy. I think most folks are at least on board with the principle of the basic principle of equality before the law and the fact that free speech at least should apply to everyone. And then the question is, what do we do in the cases that we don't like? And I, you know, folks who might disagree with the quote unquote absolutist position, then the question becomes, okay, what's the fix? And, you know, in my previous role, when I was working with a variety of partners all around Africa, you know, mostly it was around draft law. So there'd be a draft law that would come out um, and you'd end up just having to explain to folks, okay, this is all the things that you obviously realize are going to be problematic for you. And then here are all the ways that this issue could come back and bite you in another way. So I think that robust debate around what are appropriate responses, because again, I think just because you say that the abhorrent speech is protected, that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be a response. And I think that's what gets lost in a lot of cases is, so what is the response and how do we make it the most effective response possible that doesn't implicate First Amendment protection? When we stay with that, so if we protect speech that really goes against the values of this country, so people who actually want to implement an unequal system and actually want to deprive people of equal protection before the law, so all sorts of things which are not constitutional, but they can advocate for it. What do you think would have happened, and this is a hypothetical and you don't have to respond on behalf of the ACLU because it's just a hypothetical, (laughs) if after Skokie the ACLU wouldn't have taken up the case or if actually the court ruling where a local court actually said the neo-Nazis cannot march in this town, what if the court, the Supreme Court would have refused to hear it and it would have been upheld and they wouldn't have marched? There's two ways of thinking about this. One is America would have lost something which is its robust commitment to all speech, including hate speech. And there's this kind of slightly exaggerated apocalyptic way of that is the slippery slope to totalitarianism. I think if you had missed one neo-Nazi march in 1977, I don't think the country would be in a different place today. And some people say, actually, I think it would be better. I actually think we would live in a better country if the neo-Nazis couldn't march, if Brandenburg had been decided differently. And as you're saying, there's a risk. Maybe you'll be the one who's shut down next. But some people said, no, actually, these people advocate a fundamental inequality that's not American. So if they were shut down, they are hate groups driven by racial animus, they should be shut down. So the hypothetical is, what if actually the ACLU never stepped in and said, well, you know, you're in Charlottesville, you're demonstrating, you find a lawyer, go find a lawyer. We're not going to be your lawyer for this. And I think the ACLU should have shifted a little bit and sort of had debates whether they will actually provide resources for some of these speakers, the Richard Spencers. I think there's there's been debate, at least I don't know where you are right now on this, but there's been public debate from ACLU officials saying, we may reconsider whether to do this. And so what would be America, what would America be like if actually those people didn't get free legal advice from you? 
Well, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I'll, I'll try to avoid the, the hypothetical. But I think there were maybe two points in there as well. There was, you know, what would have happened if the rules at some point, whether Skokie or some other point, had been rewritten to say that it is a constitutional for a locality to forbid a protest because they advocate, you know, fill in the blank, hate. Uh, racial animus, whatever the rule might, and eventually say, I think coming up with that language would be difficult. But you know, you can imagine someone who advocates for hate is this should not be granted a, a permit. Could it be? So that's legally speaking. Could it be just to, because we have a very narrow definition of the immediate direct incitement that's a credible threat by a reasonable observer to say, well, a reasonable observer would say when you bring bats and weapons and march across campus and you identify as the alt-right, historical knowledge will teach us those people will bring violence. They're not here to debate anything. That's been a large part of the argument at UVA. They're saying, so the standard would be a reasonable observer would say, yeah, actually, this is an incitement to violence. So to use a category that's legal, it's on the books, so it means we don't have to rewrite all law, but say, well, reasonable, some reasonable people would say, yeah, when the Klan comes to town, they're not here to debate an issue. Yeah, well, just just going back, I think the question is what would happen if the rules were different? And then I think it's a bit of a separate question about, you know, what is the role of the ACLU? So maybe taking them separately, I think you can make a strong argument that if the rules were written differently, something like the Million Man March would also have been banned. And we can, I think you could think of a long list of different types of marches of all different political stripes that in some way might be tangentially or more directly related to folks who have expressed hateful, prejudicial, bigoted speech. And then the question is, because someone expresses bigoted views, are they then prohibited from ever holding marches? And I think if, if that's the case, then the, the universe of protests that ends up being prohibited or potentially prohibited is quite vast. And a lot of the students now who would like to see some of those restrictions, those, those exact, you know, if, if they are advocating for race-based redress, for example, something like this could be very easily interpreted as, you know, bigoted or derogatory towards one group or another. And uh, so it's not hard to imagine all of the other protests that would have been also prohibited. Now, in terms of the ACLU's particular role, I mean, we talked about a little bit in terms of the allocation of resources and whether the ACLU should just sort of let this one pass. I think the ACLU, you know, it's a bit of an institutional decision and it's different than, you know, what is moral or what is strategic for any particular movement. But I think the ACLU has staked itself as an organization that is committed to civil liberties and will vigorously defend these constitutional principles for tough cases as well as difficult ones. Now, there are other organizations that make a different calculation and they see themselves as having a different role. And I think that that's totally appropriate that each organization and each lawyer as an individual should be able to make those kinds of decisions about what role they'd like to play in making the world more like how they want it to be. But I think the ACLU's role has been critical and important in terms of holding the line on free speech, even when it's a pretty tough line to hold. You've worked in politics as well. Can you help me think a little bit about the political context that I think informs our conversations about Charlottesville and things like that, where people are saying, this is not just a fringe group that will have its day there, do something and then move on. But actually, there's a 
tacit endorsement or the lack of an equivocal condemnation from our highest office in the land, so from the administration. And secondly, there's a targeted approach by the attorney general to go after actually minority groups. So it's not, they're saying it's not quite true that actually you're upholding the right of some fringe group that otherwise would be suppressed. And this is allowing other protest movements to flourish and move on because they actually are being policed or by the government directly in different ways. So I think it just changes the conversation that we used to have a country where, as we know in Skokie, Jimmy Carter was asked and kind of cornered in an uncomfortable way when he was president about Skokie. He didn't want to talk about it. And some reporter basically said, say something. And he said, well, we absolutely condemn and abhor these views, which are fundamentally un-American and anti-American, but I will leave it to the courts to decide. So he said, as a politician, I condemn this. And it's a legal issue, but we don't have that right now in our country. We have an absence of con commentary or sort of some ambiguity, no condemnation, and then saying the courts will decide. So that, I think, changes this conversation that people say, this is not a fringe group that's sort of going to, you know, be a troublemaker in some little town. This is actually a national movement that's, con that's actually influencing the highest office of the land. No, I think, you know... <laughs> You don't have to convince me that we're in a troubling political moment. Certainly, uh, the, the <laughs> no, I want you to is... tell me the way out of it, actually. <laughs> 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 no, and I, I think you know the fact that these rallies that used to be, you know, attract six or ten people are now attracting dozens or hundreds in some cases, is quite a, a dramatic shift. And of course, some of the rhetoric or non-response from the highest level of government is quite distressing. I would say that the First Amendment does not depend on how fringe you are, though. Um, so the right to free speech, we're not defending them because they're fringe. We're defending them because they have the right to free speech. And I think in terms of you know the other kinds of messages that are coming out of leadership, whether it's in Washington or in state capitals or even from local governments, condemning you know Black Lives Matter, anti-police brutality, protests, all these sorts of things, the ACLU is equally outraged about those types of infringements on free speech and we're fighting, you know, I can't, I can't even count the number of ways in which we're fighting on behalf of those folks as well. So those types of infringements on free speech are absolutely distressing. So you, the inconsistency in terms of this free speech is something that you've pointed out and I think is, is right to point out the hypocrisy of folks who claim to have, you know, sort of weaponized free speech but while the, at the same time saying Colin Kaepernick should be, you know, whatever they want to do with it. Um, well, he should, so what, he should not be employed. He should right. suffer direct consequences in employment, which is protected in this country. He should be vilified. So in some ways, you're right. They're saying, here's someone who exercises free speech, and he shall be punished with the entire nation to watch, and we won't protect him. Encourage that kind of unequal treatment because of speech. Right. And so it, it, it is certainly not the case that ACLU is you know, protecting the alt-right in Charlottesville, but leaving you know, the others to just deal with the political consequences. We certainly are fighting very vigorously to protect the right to protest of people who are who are speaking out against police brutality and all of these other types of issues, wherever the Constitution is implicated. And I think that having that type of consistency is not a sign of, it's sometimes portrayed, I think, as naivete or ignoring political dynamics, but I think it's it's quite the opposite. I think it's it, it may be a bit idealistic, but I think it's also principled. I think 
a complication is I think I agree with you, but I think there's also a perception. It's not just naivete. It's not some high-minded abstract philosophical position or principled. I think people are questioning and saying, is this the ACLU actually aligning a bit too much with power to remain credible with power? So I think this is a legitimate question. And I think what you have been saying throughout this conversation, it's quite important for people to be aware of the other work the ACLU does. So this impression doesn't come up to say, look, we defend the alt-right because that plays kind of well with the elite right now. And people are going to question you on that and say, we don't trust your motives in this. We actually think maybe you're doing that because you know you'll get applause and possibly, I don't know, all sorts of other benefits or resources from people who really want to advance this cause, who are not principled, who are not just abstract legal thinkers, but who actually want to advance one agenda, not all agendas. Well, I mean, I think you'll be hard-pressed to find someone from the alt-right who really is shouting the praises of the ACLU because we happen to take these positions. So in terms of building our credibility with, with their ilk, if that's a strategic decision, I'm not sure it's a great strategy. I think it's, as I said, I think you know the history has tangible examples where these rules that were created to protect one kind of speech can be used also to protect another. So I think it's quite, it's quite strategic in that way that we understand that these principles need to be defended because when you get bad precedent, that bad precedent right. is there when you want to use it again. So, you know, I think these criticisms are are worthwhile. I think it, it's important for the ACLU to be examining itself and its own motives. I think, you know, a lot of the rhetoric around characterizing student activists is hugely problematic. And I hope that part of my work with the ACLU will be to help and have a more constructive dialogue between folks who feel like free speech is purely being used against them, uh, because I understand where they're coming from, and I think that they have uh, some very important grievances to voice. I think that doesn't change my overall feeling that threats to free speech are worth taking on, no matter what kind of viewpoint is being expressed. I think another dimension of this debate that Maybe it's important for the ACLU to think about this perception that universities are kind of liberal bastions that don't tolerate conservative thought. The legal scholar Cass Sunstein wrote this piece yesterday or two days ago that he says universities are overwhelmingly liberal. They're Democrats. They register Democrats and Republicans. There were many people who didn't respond to the survey, so he left out all the people who didn't respond. And then he made two assumptions. First of all, that the Republican Party is a viable position right now who people be, who believe in facts and in the truth, while the Republican Party takes positions that go against scientific knowledge. Maybe that's one of the reasons why people don't identify. And secondly, he makes the assumption that education would be better if there are professors who are on all political sides teaching students. There's no proof or guarantee that necessarily having a department of economics and having half the people be Democrats and half Republicans teaches better economic theory. It's just an assumption made. But I think there's, this is something the ACLU will have to contend with, that there's a very large sort of attack on the university as too liberal, as intolerant of conservative speech. And you're going to be getting appeals to say, you have to take on all these universities because they're shutting down conservative speech or they're going way too far in some direction of liberalism in the name of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I'm, Curious whether, you know, how to actually 
it's more like how to address this because I'm very concerned that the university is sort of caricatured in this way because I don't experience this actually that I'm surely counted as a liberal and I, I know I'm listed on all sorts of sites as an enemy of free speech, which I am not. I'm a very proud naturalized American citizen who actually very much depends on free speech rights to do what I do. Mm. <laughs> but this perception of the university is, I think, a more general problem in our democracy that people feel that no one can talk to anybody, that there's kind of this division and this split. Well, yeah, it's, it's an interesting point. And I mean, it's certainly beyond my, my moderate expertise to comment on the state of higher education or characterizing it in any political way. You've been three of the top schools in the country. So was your sense <laughs> that they're liberal bastions indoctrinating you in liberal groupthink, or did you feel you were exposed to a range of ideas? <laughs> well, look, I mean, I think I valued the discussions that I was able to have in, in classes, and I do think, you know, to some extent, there is, a, there is obviously value in being able to freely exchange ideas. I think, you know, what you'll hear a lot of student activists say is that there are all of these more subtle ways in which what's called free exchange of ideas is actually sort of reinforcing existing power structures. And I've also had very much that experience. You know, as liberal as you might want to call any of the universities I've attended, I've also had very uncomfortable and offensive situations happen in the classroom, outside of the classroom. So I very much empathize with the experience of students who are saying, look, there is a huge problem. It's not that we're being overly sensitive. It's that we're being bombarded with these messages that are intentionally or unintentionally very offensive. You know, I, I take all that on board and I've experienced all that myself. I think in terms of the constitutional questions and about who gets to write the rules and how we write them, a lot of it depends, on, of course, whether it's a private university or a public university. Um, and a public university is in many cases you know, treated as, as government. And for the ACLU and any other kind of, you know, activist or reform-minded individual, you always have to be very vigilant whenever the government tries to regulate anything. Uh, and I think whether that's over-regulation or under-regulation, washing their hands of important things, or trying to regulate and restrict access to, to four hours or speech, you know, the ACLU is very attuned to, to making sure that government is held to account, and that's including private universities and also it's worth noting that that's the, no matter who's in government and no matter which political party is in power. I mean, the ACLU had a lot of grievances with the previous administration and every administration before that, and they'll have, you know, you'd call to account the next administration, whoever that, that, that is. And I think, you know, getting away from categorizing the university as A, B, or C, I think when there are public universities instituting regulations, the ACU is going to pay attention and make sure that it's respecting my portfolio will be looking especially at the First Amendment issues, but my colleagues down the hall and all around the country are looking at all variety of ways in which rights can either be reinforced or curtailed by universities and other government entities. Can I conclude by asking you, is your work, are you basically in a kind of civil advocacy corporate law firm? Do you wait for people to bring you cases? You have clients walk in, say, this is my case. You'll interview them. You take on the case. Is that what you do? Or do you actually find things that you find this is a complicated one or one worth looking into? How does, how does your day, what's your day going to look like, do you think, starting now? <laughs> <laughs> it's a great question, and I'll let you know in a few months how it goes. But my impression is that it, it varies a little bit by project. Um, so I, I mentioned our racial justice project, women's rights, all those sorts of issues. But I'm, I didn't even mention the one that's probably busiest right now, which is the Immigrants' Rights Project. Um, so as much as people might say, oh, the ACLU only cares about 
defending the alt-right, I think everybody knows that the ACLU is right up the front lines, you know, at the airports, pushing back against the child and in the courtrooms at the airports. And so the Immigrants' Rights Project, I think, is a very clear example of, of, of all of the great work that ACLU has been doing to push back against government overreach in a variety of areas. I think in terms of how we get clients on the speech side, we have fewer individual clients that our docket tends to be more heavily in terms of amicus briefs and chiming in on the First Amendment or Fourth Amendment implications of, of one case or another. But I think depending on the issue area being addressed within the organization, there are different ways of getting cases. But we also have state affiliates, the ACLU chapters and all uh, affiliates in all of these different locations. So sometimes an affiliate will say, hey, we've got a case. We'd love to have assistance from national. Sometimes it will be other organizations that reach out to us. Sometimes we'll be just scanning you know, the news or Twitter or whatever, and just try to catch catch wind of something that's in line with something else that we're thinking of. Uh, there are other issues that we think are ripe, and we're actively looking for how to address that issue through a case. I think the short answer is, I guess, all of the above. I think for the speech privacy technology, we don't have so many walk-ins, but people reach out to us in all sorts of ways, either through our affiliates, we hear about it through media, we hear about it through partner organizations, or sometimes I think people do just write to us out of the blue. But it's a complicated question. I'm still wrapping my head around it. Remind me about the what's the Fourth Amendment? I'm always learning in these conversations. I can, if I really think hard, I remember. Our Fourth Amendment really focuses on the, the privacy and technology privacy side and of technology. Our, so, so, so search and seizure. So that's quite interesting. And also that technology is going to be a huge area for you, as we've seen in the last couple of months, that actually the big tech companies and speech issues are happening in front of Congress and are concerned lots of people in very different countries. Privacy assumptions are very different. Privacy laws in Europe have now made everybody look at agreement forms that we accept cookies from all of our websites, which I think surprised a lot of people how much data is being taken out of your own daily traffic on the Internet. So that's probably going to be a big part as well that's going to come up, I think, more and more. Certainly. And, and I have colleagues who are experts in all of this. One of them just... One very important decision in the Supreme Court in the Carpenter case where you now need a warrant to get the geolocation data from cell phones, which is, I think, a, a major victory. But there are a whole variety of different kinds of technological privacy surveillance issues that are being addressed by the ACLU and others. But I think, you know, the nexus between the Fourth Amendment and, and also First Amendment issues is, and, you know, speech offline as well as speech online is certainly going to take up a lot of my time going forward. Interesting. So, Emerson, I really want to thank you for taking this time. So I think it's critically important for people to understand the wide scope of what the ACLU does. And I think you'll be busy in your office, but I think if finally suggestion, I think people from the ACLU should visit campuses. I think you should have discussions with students and faculty to actually alert people to what's at stake. Um, so to shape this narrative alongside the press and the media and pundits who have all sorts of, in my view, fantasies about college. I'm sure they're looking back at the days when they were in college. <laughs> so I, I really encourage you, and I'd be happy to host you at some point. <laughs> well, I agree fully, and I accept the invitation. I'm happy to come to NYU anytime. Oh, great. That's really great. So so thank you again, Emerson Sykes. So congratulations, first of all, starting at the ACLU, day four. I hope to have you back on the program at some point in the future, and we can talk more extensively about what your work will have been at that point. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye. All right. Bye.